Hello, and welcome to History Out Loud, Chat from the Stacks, a podcast by Coldale Libraries. Presented by Jill Carpenter. And Sarah Browning is back with us again for part two of From Tombardon to Chicago, Sam Fielding and the Haymarket Riot of 1886. Before we get ahead of ourselves, Sam had always promised that he was going to come back. And partly it's because he wants to see his father before he dies, because he knows his father's unwell. But also he has this, um, this engagement, which he had made before he left. And his sweetheart's name was Sarah Gill, and she was from Walston, and she also had worked at Field and Brothers. Poor Sarah, bless her, she waited 10 whole years, nearly, actually it's more like 11 years uh, for him to come back. And, and Sam writes that, you know, because wages were poor, he just hadn't had the money to go back. But he also writes that, I hope that would find some inducement to stay in Britain when I went back to visit because things were getting really bad in Chicago by then. Um, but he comes back when there's another downturn, unfortunately. So the joy that he describes when the, the New Orleans cotton hit Lancashire ports in 1865, it's gone. <laughs> so he comes back, sees all his friends, gives his dad a hug and marries Sarah. They go back to Chicago after that. And within two years, they've got a little girl named Alice, named after his mother. Having Alice, uh, his daughter, I think is one of the major changes as well that really pushes him into socialism and anarchism because he's got his wife now, he's got a daughter, he's building his family and he's back in Chicago and things are becoming far, far worse than they'd ever been before. This is something that he talks about, not in his autobiography, but in his pre-sentencing statement that he reads out in court. And he's talking about the winter of 1884 in Chicago. And what he says is, in this city of Chicago, children are working at very tender ages. Going home one very cold night in the winter of 1884, two little girls ran up to me and begged of me to go home with them. I asked them why. They said, a man down there has been offering us money. It was seven o'clock at night and snowing. I asked them where they had been so late. They said, we have been working in such a store. Children, babies turned out from their mother's heart to make a living, their father's perhaps dead. In this case, they were. The civilization that will not and cannot support a widow so that she will not have to turn her children out to such temptations as that is not worth respecting. And the man who will not try to change it is no man. So yeah, he's, he's seeing not just children having to go to work, but little girls having to go to work and being targeted you know, for abuse, being targeted for exploitation by sexual predators. And um, he's seeing literally the worst of everything now. And I'm sure he cannot help but tie it to his mother. I'm sure he cannot help but tie it to, you know, his childhood and his experiences talking about children having to run up and down underneath the looms all day and sobbing their hearts out because they have so much work to do and have to do it so fast. And they're six, seven, eight years old and they can't keep up with it. Like that's not the life he wanted for his children. That's not what he moved to America for. I think that moment was probably one of the biggest things that really just pushed him over the edge in terms of his philosophies. So he's turning away from his Methodist roots and heading towards the anarchist movement, isn't he, at this point, um, and the trade unions. 
Yeah, he absolutely is. And um, I think for the benefit of the listener, when, when we're talking about the anarchism movement and anarchy, it's not about... <laughs> it's not the sex pistols. <laughs> No, no, it's, it's, it's not, it's not Vivian off the young ones. It's not that at all, uh, or Rick for that matter. Um, it's the idea that the entire system is broken. And that's really important to, to remember here and important to keep in mind, you know, when you think about the conditions in Chicago, like everything was broken. Everything was just working to the advantage of the smallest number of people at the disadvantage of the largest number of people. At this point, Sam owns a house. He, he's bought a small shack for his family, like a small little house. You know, he's a property owner at this point. And, and the papers make much of that during the trial. And it's like, oh, you know, you hypocrite. But it's not about specific elements of the system. It's the system as a whole. It's the way it's set up. And the anarchist movement at this time, its main concern is just, you know, rearranging everything. Violence is not a core tenant of anarchism. Um, in this context. The problem is that, that they are starting to talk about violence. Um, Albert Parsons even, uh, and this is something that's used against him in, in court, he makes a statement about, you know, dynamite is the, is, will be the great leveler because now a single man can have a massive impact on things. And um, hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's... <laughs> In retrospect, it wasn't a wise thing to say, but... These are the words of desperation, though, aren't they? They are, and that's the key thing, is the desperation that people felt at this point. Um, and anybody who's listening who's ever read The Jungle by Upton Sinclair, they'll, they'll know what sort of conditions we're talking about. Um, he was a journalist who spent time living with immigrant workers in Chicago, and he writes about people working in um, pickle factories, having to stand in brine for... 10 hours a day because there's not adequate drainage in the warehouses and their feet being pickled, like losing toes because of oh. this, the effect it had on their skin. Um, he talks about people waiting in line, um, queuing up to get factory work because you had to queue up every morning. And if you were lucky, they'd pick you. And if not, you had to go home after maybe four hours. And, um, you know, a, a child not moving forward with the queue when it starts to move and the man from the factory walking up and down, cuffing the boy on the ear and his ear breaking off because he had frostbite from the mm. temperatures because it's very oh, cold no. in Chicago in the winter because of the Great Lakes and the wind that it's called the Windy City for a reason. It was horrible. Um, that's what these people were facing. Mm. And that's why anarchism became such a powerful movement in Chicago. Um, but even before Haymarket, the trade union groups were very divided on this because they could see how desperate some people were and how the anarchist movement was drawing a lot of those people. And they're saying, look, you know, we have to be careful. And you're beginning to get the split between people who are saying we need to practice respectability politics and the people who are saying we're well beyond that. The only thing we can do now is just cause trouble and cause property damage until they realize that we're serious and that we have some power. So that's the split that's already beginning to form leading up to May 4th, 1886. That just completely blows the trade union apart. Um, and I know that's, that's not an intentional pun, but that bomb going off, it just completely destroys the movement for about 20 years afterwards. So um, we're back at Haymarket again now, aren't we? Yes. He's been arrested. 
charged with murder. Um, he wasn't the only one, though, was he? No, ultimately eight men were arrested and all of them were charged with murder. Now, the murders that they were charged with, there was one police officer who died immediately that night as a result of his injuries from the bomb. And uh, another five police officers died after that. So there were six murder charges being leveled against these eight men. There's a book that we have in stock uh, about the Haymarket and the author rightly points out that we will never know how many other people actually died who weren't the police because a lot of the people there were so scared of being arrested. If they were injured, they just you know, ran away and hid and their deaths would not have been recorded at all, especially if they were immigrants. But also that a lot of the injuries were caused by the police panicking and just firing into the crowd and at each other. So the, the irony is that the bomb <laughs> probably killed two of the officers and the other four were accidentally killed by their, their colleagues. But it was, a, it was a curious charge because only two or three of them were actually there. And they could only link one, uh, Louis Ling, to bomb making of any kind. And they never were able to prove that he had made that bomb. There's been a lot of academic study into it since then. Um, there, there's a few different suspects who have been identified as having possibly thrown the bomb it's thought that Louis Ling was involved in making it, but he did not necessarily know that it was going to be used that night. But I mean, Albert Parsons, he'd been there with his wife and children and his wife and children had only just left about 10 minutes before the bomb went off. Uh, and that was used against him as proof that he knew, but you know, everyone else was saying, well, why would he have invited his family? <laughs> he knew a bomb was going to go off. Mm. Um, a lot of the things that they'd been saying in speeches and, you know, that had been printed particularly in the German language newspapers, were being picked up and used as proof that these were violent men. And there wasn't really an incitement law at the time. Free speech is a major tenet of the Bill of Rights of the Constitution. Um, it's, it's what America prides itself on the most. But the state legislature basically wrote a law within three days that allowed them to charge the eight men with murder. And a great deal of this was down to personal lobbying by the editor of the Chicago Tribune, who actually visited the state attorney general at home and said, look, if you charge them with murder, it's good for your career politically, and it's good for my newspaper because people are furious anyway. We've already been stoking up antipathy towards the trade union movement. The editor was living in the same lakeside mansion area as all these factory owners, all these, you know, titans of industry. He was a very, very wealthy man. He had a political reason to be against these people anyway. And this was a golden opportunity to, to crush this movement that was threatening their way of life. So they really ran with it. <laughs> and the newspaper coverage particularly was just awful. But yeah, so basically, even though they could not be tied to the bomb at all, apart from one, they were all charged with murder and they're all tried as such. Uh, the bomb making man killed himself, didn't he, in, in prison? He blew himself up. Yes. How do you how do you do that in prison? <laughs> well, um, somebody smuggled in a device um, is what it looks like. It's difficult to tell because a story went round from one of the Chicago papers 
that it was a blasting cap that had been concealed in a cigar that somebody had smuggled into him. But that reporter wasn't actually there. So, um, so a lot of the, the coverage at the time is not actually um, necessarily correct. Nobody actually saw him do it, but the theory is that somebody smuggled something into him during a visit mm. and he concealed it in his cell until it was time to use it. He did it the night before he was sentenced to be hung. Right. So it gets a little bit complicated, doesn't it? Because there's eight men, he kills himself. Sam and another man, am I right in thinking their sentences were commuted to life imprisonment just prior to the hanging date? Yeah. So when the trial went forward, it was within about three weeks of the event. The jury was packed with people who had been chosen because they basically had made their minds up. And later on, one of the jurors was actually part of the campaign to get the men pardoned posthumously or while they were living, because he basically said, all of our employers told us we had to find them guilty or we would lose our jobs. They were, they were all sentenced to death, all eight of them. And then the night of the hanging, Fielden and a man named Schwab were pardoned. Um, at some point prior to that, a man who was involved called Neva, his sentence had been commuted uh, and changed down to just 15 years imprisonment. So he was already safe. But the others, the four, well, yeah, the five uh, and then minus Louis Ling. Yeah. Um, yeah, four men were actually hung in the end on the night of November 12th, uh, 1887. And Albert Parsons was one of those men, wasn't he? Yes, he was. And that was considered, and it still is considered within the trade unionist and anarchist movement as a turning point. In the same way that, you know, there are people who consider that the assassination of Malcolm X is a turning point Mm -hmm. in the civil rights struggle. Assassination of Martin Luther King is a a turning point. You know, it was a charismatic, dedicated man, lost, you know, lost to the movement. And his wife carried on after him. She kept on writing pamphlets and giving speeches and making trouble until she died in her 80s. Um, <laughs> Lucy Parsons, she was incredible. Um, she, she was a mixed race woman, which again, him as a white man marrying her was a big thing. But she was absolutely determined not to be um, held back by the expectations for women at the time. The night of the execution, um, it was covered in great detail in the newspapers. And it's really sad in terms of Sam because he and Michael Schwabe, they were, they were pardoned with a few hours to go, I think about four hours to go. They were leading the other four men out. And the article says that Sam was at the bars of his cell saying goodbye to them. And... Um, Sam said, where's Parsons? And Parsons yells back, I'm here, Sam. Uh, don't worry about me or something to that effect. And the reporter said that Sam um, burst into tears and fell onto his cot and just wept and wept and wept and wept until the men were let out. So, he, you know, these were his friends. They were his professional colleagues. And I'm sure there was a great deal of survivor's guilt. But for all the sort of very, very horrible things that were written in the newspapers about them once they'd been once all their appeals had been exhausted a lot of the newspaper coverage 
outside of the Chicago Inter-Ocean, which throughout was one of the only papers that took anything near a positive tone towards the men. And when I say positive, I mean it was neutral. <laughs> the coverage began to shift a little bit and it started to focus on the wives of the different men and particularly um, Sarah Fielden. She is described in lots and lots of the newspaper accounts as looking haggard and drawn and um, unsurprising really your husband's in prison also she uh, she was pregnant wasn't she with their second child yes well this is a lot of her looking unhealthy is because she's pregnant and under a great deal of stress yeah during the trial um but there, there you know there's something in the popular imagination about a sad mother with very small children and it's almost as if once society understands that these men are going to be killed and it's safe they begin to show some sympathy for them. You know, there, there's one account of Sam Fielden during the trial where it talks about his, his repulsive cat-like eyes and uh, swarthy low hairline and that. And it's just like this, this disgusting man. Didn't they call him something of a big galoot? <laughs> yes. Well, that, that's the most positive thing. So. What, what's a galoot? A glute, a glute is like a sort of lumbering, benign, but clumsy, oafish person. It's, it's, it's usually used as a sort of term of slightly mocking endearment. It's not a, it's not a monstrous term to use about oh, somebody, but that, that, that's, the, that's the kindest anybody ever speaks of him. And also he's called a shaggy and unkempt man. Now I've seen the photograph of him and he looks pretty well turned out to me. That photo was taken the day after his arrest, and he looks like he's just stepped out of a, a craft ale pub. Exactly, yeah. I was thinking exactly <laughs> the same. He's got the beard. Yeah. He looks like he's, like, kind of done his hair in a little sort of, like... Yeah, he's got, he's got like, a little uh, Tintin quiff at the top. Of yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You look at the picture, and you look at the, the coverage, and you think, okay, mm. <laughs> I see what you're doing. But yeah, once it, once it is safe to give these men any sort of scrap of, or ounce of humanity, you start to get newspaper coverage where it talks about his wife visiting him and, you know, him, him being, you know, touched by her being there and her crying and him trying to comfort her through the wire. And they start to be allowed slightly more personal visits, you know, in the run up to the execution where they can actually be near each other or, or sort of in the same room. With, with people there. And one of the things that the interocean talks about is how he would um, be given a few sweets by the guards before his family visited and he would hide them around his cell for Alice to look for while he was talking to Sarah. Hmm. Try, trying to nor not normalize what was going on, but trying to not make it a traumatic experience for her to visit her father in prison. And it's, you know, touching little thing and, um, you know, one, one of the um, newspaper articles before the execution talks about Sarah taking an opportunity when he's being led from one room to another while she's waiting in a separate room to sort of rush the door that's open and just fling herself into his arms and she's crying and kissing him. And she's got their son who, was, who has been born uh, by that point. His name is Harry. And he's crying and, and saying no one there was brave enough to try and peel them apart from each other. And and that little article ends saying, whatever Fielden's faults may be, um, which 
according to this paper, were many. Um, whatever Fielden's faults may be, he has always been a kind husband and father, and the affection existing between him and his wife is very warm. He didn't fare much better in our local press either, did he? The Tomerden News and Hebden Bridge Advertiser. No, he absolutely does not. Um, it gets to the, the Tomerden papers about a week and a bit after um, what has happened. And uh, the Tomerden Advertiser and Hebden Bridge Newsletter runs uh, a story saying, um, Samuel Fielden, who is one of the leaders in the murderous riot, is a native of Tomerden, where many of his kinfolk still reside. Uh, some years ago, he left England for America, where he made his home. Like many another well-meaning, earned, self-taught man living in thickly populated centers of labor, his head was turned by the sophistries of socialism, and he has served, as many others now do, to illustrate the truth of the maxim that a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. From time to time, he has forwarded to his friends in England copies of mad, wicked socialistic prints recommending force, arms, dynamite, assassination, as the remedies for social inequalities and disabilities. The shocking climax to this folly was therefore not altogether unexpected. Um, it, it doesn't start out well. Um, there's another article a little while later talking about what happened. Um, and it's basically reprinting a lot of what was printed in the Chicago Tribune, which was completely untrue. So eventually there's a newly elected governor and he's instrumental in getting the remaining three prisoners pardoned. Yes, well, this is what happens. The existing governor is one who does the 11th hour sentence commutations for um, Fielden and Schwabe. And that's because there's been lots of local businessmen who have advocated for them, and particularly Sam Fielden. Um, the people who he had been working for, stonemasons, basically said, he's wonderful, we love him. If you commute his sentence, he can do his prison work with us. Um, please let us have him back. <laughs> he was our best stonemason. So that's part of what happens. But yes, in 1892, there's, there's an election and a new governor is elected. And he's known for being very sympathetic to socialists and to people who are working for, you know, more progressive policies. And he's running against um, the chosen successor to the existing governor. And that man is campaigning saying, if you elect Altgeld, um, he's going to pardon the Haymarket men uh, who are still left. That's the sort of man he is. But Altgeld gets the majority vote. And um, a lot of the reason why is because a lot of, of people who have immigrated to America and moved into Chicago, um, a lot of them have gotten citizenship and they've, they've got the right to vote. And also, you know, it's been a while. It's been, at this point, six years. The only coverage you're really getting now is every year on the Haymarket anniversary, the wives of, of the men who were murdered. As, as the trade union movement is putting it, um, they're holding like a little event and they've put up a little shrine to them and this and that. Like that's the only coverage you're getting at this point. And the coverage only ramps up again because of Alt-Geld running and people trying to use this as a, a way of turning people against him. But he wins. It's not a huge majority, but he does get a majority. And just as his opponent had been saying, he then reviews the case. But he doesn't do that for a few months because at this point, Fielden and Schwabe are exhausting their final right of appeal to the Supreme Court 
the federal Supreme Court to get their convictions overturned. And that fails. And once that has failed, Altgeld pardons them right before Christmas. There are several things that have been happening that, that mean this pardon is allowed to happen. Police corruption. Chief Inspector Bonfield, who led the police to Haymarket Square that night, he was convicted about two years before the men were pardoned of having taken bribes and acting illegally while a, a police inspector. And as the men were continuing to appeal their sentences, more people were coming out of the woodwork and saying, I was intimidated by the police. Um, I was intimidated by my employers. I was intimidated by journalists. And a picture was beginning to form of all these groups just working together to actively make sure that all eight of these men were convicted and hung while knowing that they did not actually have anything to do with what had happened that night, but to send a message. Even if they're not guilty, we should hang them anyway, because the anarchists need to know that we're not going to stand for nonsense. And that's the picture that was emerging and becoming clearer and clearer. But yeah, as they were working through their appeals, they were being to add more and more to each appeal, but it was falling on deaf ears because nobody wanted to hear it. Nobody wanted to consider that they might be not guilty for either personal, you know, economic reasons or for larger philosophical reasons. So that was why Altgeld took the action he did in the end, because he was the only person left who could do anything. So he did. So Fielding, he, um, he gets out of prison, goes back to his family. What does he do then? He gives a few speeches after he goes back to his family, um, because that is what he does. <laughs> <laughs> we can't make we cannot make Sam Field and stop talking, um, but we but he does stop talking more or less. Like he he goes to a few places and says thank you for all your support, uh, thank you for looking after my wife and children. Um, there there were fundraisers, there are multiple fundraisers every year for the surviving families of the men who had been hung and the men who were in prison, and that was part of what was able to keep Sarah and Alice and Harry from just being plunged into complete poverty. So he gives a few speeches saying thank you and, you know, this was a terrible thing and we must keep fighting and this and that. But he's much more careful about his language. His language was part of what was used against him in the original trial. He, he had said something about, um, you know, the law is meant to serve us. The law is not meant to be our master. If the law tries to throttle you, then you must throttle the law. And that's brought up as um, incitement, saying you were encouraging people to be violent, to, to kill people. So he's much more careful in his language, but he really struggles to find work because Chicago still isn't doing great. And he's, he's Sam Fielden. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so he's still working for the stonemasons um, who were employing him while employing is a loose term while he was in prison in Joliet, which is where they sent him um, once the sentence was commuted to get him out of Chicago centrally. Um, he's still working for them, but the wages aren't great. And much like London, during the Industrial Revolution, there's no environmental laws, there's no air quality control. Um, industrialization has continued in Chicago. The lakes are poisonous, the air is terrible, and his children have got chest complaints all the time. He's interviewed by a paper about a year after he was released, and the article's saying, um, Sam Fielden to go west. And he's essentially saying, there's not a whole lot in Chicago and I want a better life for my children. I'm going to try and get out of here. 
And his dream had always been to go out west. What happens is at some point, he inherits some money from a family member in Tauberton who passes away and has, has amassed a bit of money and they've left it to him. So he gets hold of this money and he and his family move to Colorado and buy a farm out there. And they live on this farm for the rest of their life <laughs> and are, are basically never heard from again in terms of national politics of any kind. He's out of the trade union movement. People who visit from Tomerton who are traveling through America, they call in on him. Um, you know, there, there are some things here and there that pop up, such and such has visited Samuel Fielden, the pardoned anarchist at his home in Colorado. And, um, you know, they say he still has all his beliefs, but he, he, his family come first. He does not want to be parted from them anymore. He doesn't want to do anything that's going to split them apart. Mm. And it's actually kind of not sad, I guess, bittersweet in a way, but um, his children never marry. And they just live on this ranch in Colorado for the rest of their lives. Um, Sarah passes away first. She passes away about five, six years after they buy this farm. And then Sam dies about 15 years later. And Alice and Harry just live on the ranch and farm it. They, they raise cows, um, they sell beef, and they pass away one after another in the 40s and 50s. And that's that, that's the end of it. So it's, it's a, an anticlimax in a way, but I, I personally think that they just decided they're never going to be apart again. That, that's it. That's the end of it. I don't, I don't necessarily think of it as an anticlimax. In a sense, it's a liberation. Yeah. I'd quite like to go and live on a ranch in Colorado. <laughs> I know, it's a dream. The weather's much better than it is here, I'll tell you that. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, where, where they were, it's, um, it's not desert Colorado. Um, it's not mountainous Colorado. It's sort of an in-between climate, but it's a warm, dry climate. Hmm. And, um, you know, one, one thing that happens with the newspaper coverage after their pardon, that's actually positive. It's one of the few positive things that's run about the families is a, um, a woman reporter named Teresa Dean. She, she would write sort of a female interest stories for newspapers. And she ran a, a story where she basically visited some of the wives, specifically the three of the men who had been released. And um, I mean, Teresa Dean is not, <laughs> she's not the brightest person. She, she talks about Sarah Fielden speaking in broken English, which is like, no, that's just a Northern accent. I'm yeah. sorry. <laughs> um, but when she visits, um, they don't have enough money to heat their whole apartment that they're renting. And um, Alice has got whooping cough. And Sarah is saying, I can only talk to you for a few minutes because I've got to go and, and see the doctor about getting some medicine for Alice. He won't like it if I don't get it sorted out. Um, they've gone somewhere where, you know, traditionally people who had tuberculosis would go somewhere, you know, hot and dry where the air is a lot clearer. There's no, there's minimal pollutants and it's the best place to go if you have chronic lung ailments. So they've, they've chosen it for a reason. It, it's satisfying in the sense that he's, he's managed to make peace with himself and his own drive to, to stand up for what is right, because that does not always result in good things happening. And it's one thing to be self-sacrificing, but it's another thing to put your family at risk. 
he saw the effect that his imprisonment and the threat of his death, the threat of violence that was being issued constantly to people in the trade union movement after what happened. Um, you know, he saw all these things. He saw how it affected his wife and his family, and he had to make a decision. I think, I think the bittersweetness is, for me is just in the fact that a decision had to be made at all. And I do wonder how at peace he really was with it deep down. And I hope he was at peace, honestly, um, because he's, he'd suffered enough. <laughs> you know, he did everything he could, and it wasn't his fault that he got caught up in this wrong place, wrong time, wider national argument about the nature of free speech and what we do and do not allow. To close off this really interesting story, if you could read something he wrote his sentencing hearing in October 1886. It really speaks for what he stood for. It does. Um, and I was really glad that I came across this because um, initially I was only working from his, his autobiography statement. But when I was going through researching online, I, I found everybody's statements that they made at trial. I think it sums up what he, what he believed and what drove him. Yeah. Um, and, and why to the end, he said he would not turn on people. He would not lie. He would not bend his principles, you know, even when it was putting him you know, literally in the firing line. What he said was, if I am to be convicted, hanged for telling the truth, the little child that kneels by its mother's side on the West side today and tells its mother that she wants her papa to come home. And to whom I had intended, as soon as its prattling tongue should commence to talk, to teach that beautiful sentiment, that child had better never be taught to read, had better never be taught that sentiment to love truth. If they are to be convicted of murder because they dare tell what they think is the truth, then it would be better that every one of your schoolhouses were reduced to the ground and not one stone left upon another. If you teach your children to read, they will acquire curiosity from what they read. They will think and they will search for the meaning of this and that. They will arrive at conclusions. And then if they love the truth, they must tell to each other what is truth or what they think is the truth. That is the sum of my offending. That was a common thread all throughout the trial was, are we to be hanged for saying what we think is the truth, for saying what we think is right? And to Sam Fielden's credit, he did that from start to finish. You've been listening to History Out Loud, a podcast by Calderdale Libraries. Produced and presented by Jill Carpenter. And join us next time when I will be talking with Gary Stringfellow, a key player in the Rush Bearing Revival in Sorby Bridge and author of Rush Bearing and Rush Strewing in Churches Across the Northern Counties. <laughs>